Well, the book of Luke starts, as we already know, with a, a commendation to the person who Luke is writing to. We've mentioned it before. His name is Theophilus. Uh, we don't know anything about him. Some think he was a Jew, maybe from Alexandria. It's been suggested he was a Roman official. Others have suggested it's an honorary title. And if you like, he's, he's rather than a specific person, it's almost a, a kind of constructed person so that we might relate to the idea of somebody being the recipient of this letter and engage with it. Some have suggested he might have been the lawyer for Paul. And at the end of his, at the coming defense that he was making uh, in Rome, that uh, Theophilus might have been Paul's lawyer. Some have suggested that he was a man by the name of Titus Flavius Sabinus. All sorts of different ideas. In a strange way, I find that quite helpful. Because what it actually means is that no matter what our perspective of who this, this recipient of this letter might be, in some way or another, uh, we can all relate to the possibility. The idea that he might have been somebody who was a true believer. This speaks to us. It might be that he was somebody who was investigating or searching the idea of faith. He speaks to us. It might have been that it was somebody who was in a legal dispute on behalf of Paul. It speaks to us because each of us come to the message of the Word of God from different perspectives and yet it engages and it speaks to us all, which is an incredible thought. Some have suggested that the Bible, in a way, it, it raises up a mirror of humanity before us. That's not an idea that's uh, unique uh, to the Bible. Is it the 450th or 400th anniversary of Shakespeare? Something like it. It's a lot of years. Uh, here's a man, really, who wrote plays which, in a remarkable way, lifted up a mirror in front of humanity. It allowed us to gaze at somebody else and consider ourselves in an incredible way, in a powerful way, bringing different ideas, raising issues of humanity and our challenges, how we behave. And if you like, if that's at the highbrow level, which in fairness, we all know that Shakespeare wasn't highbrow back in his day, but it is now, isn't it? If you want to go to the other extreme, we can go to something like the contemporary and uh, the one that I'm really interested in right at the moment, a guy by the name of Quentin Tarantino who makes movies, and it's in another way it suggests that the movies that he makes raise a mirror to the existence of us as human beings. Somebody has put his, it like this. His ironic mix of humor and violence that steadies you between the horrific and the comical so that your senses are neither overwhelmed by the film's violence nor lulled into denial of the seriousness of the subject matter by its humor. That sounds really interesting. If anybody wants that quote later, see me at the end, I can pass it on. Basically what it's saying is it's violent and it's humorous and it leaves you sat in the middle, really thinking about the idea that's behind it. Is that what Luke is doing? Or is there something way bigger? Something bigger than just lifting up humanity in front of us. 
Luke makes the extraordinary claim that he is not lifting up a human figure in front of us to consider. He speaks directly opposite to those ideas. He says, I'm doing no less than lifting before you the incarnate God. God present with us. And he says to Theophilus, the things that you've learned I want you to be sure of. And so we come to this little section and we ask the question, how can we be sure of the things that we hear about Jesus when it makes incredible claims like that? Three little stories, three cameos. The first starts off like this. Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the lake of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. It's called all sorts of different things in the Bible different terms that, which were in common use at the time. It's a beautiful place, incredible place, uh, but it was also very much a working place. Jesus finds himself in this Galilean town, and he is speaking with an incredible power. People are flocking to listen to him. Uh, and so, with the number of people that were coming to listen to him, what he did was he went onto a small boat, he went out onto the water, uh, and uh, because of his distance from the people and the stillness of the water, it creates a very natural auditorium. His voice carries, in, anybody's voice, carries incredibly over the water, and then as the bank steps up from the water's edge, then people sat or standing around the water's edge are able to hear with incredible clarity somebody sat in a boat and speaking. Imagine it uh, on a still day down in the lake, up across in the Lake District, isn't it? Across in the Lake District. An incredible still day, and you're out on a rowing boat, and you can hear voices coming from that rowing boat out onto the shore. You can picture the idea, can't you? It comes with incredible clarity. What I find interesting is that Jesus was speaking and flocks of people in a fishing town, an ordinary working town, were flocking to listen to it. It's one of the things that we find interesting about Jesus. We saw it earlier on where Jesus, Luke tells us that Jesus was speaking in the temple. Uh, and when he was speaking in the temple as a young boy, people were listening to him. His words were amazing. His, what he taught was incredible. He had this authority in what he spoke about, which was compelling. It was powerful. And there were many people listening to him. You know, I sometimes think that we, we can have this tendency sometimes to think back to the ancient world and think that they're a little bit, a little bit simple, really. You know, they can't, they can't spot the, the, uh, the charlatans. I think that's incredibly arrogant. I think there were as many charlatans then as there are now and we don't know the names of all of them because they've just receded into nothingness. Some of you might be old enough to remember David Icke. He was, um, he, he was, into, he was a sportsman and then he was a TV presenter. And he came up with this really incredible claims about his engagement with God and all the rest of it. Did you know that he's still going? He's just written another book. He's still 
compelling uh, some numbers of people to come and listen to him. I'll tell you now, in a hundred years, David Icke will be a forgotten figure. People are listening, people find him interesting, but he'll be gone, he'll be forgotten. And yet here we find ourselves, 2,000 years later, still compelled by the things that Jesus taught. Isn't it fascinating? His words are still changing the world because he still speaks with an authority which is amazing. Here we have Jesus speaking with this incredible authority. That's all in those first few verses up to verse 3. Here's the question. How do we know his words have authority? How do we know? I suppose we can ask that question now, but if we were wise, sat on that lakeside that day, we would be wise to ask the same thing. I guess in some way, Simon Peter, who was a fisherman, uh, we don't know whether it was his boat that was used. There's a suggestion, a guess in the text, that it could have been his boat that was used. He's he's asking that question maybe in his mind. Can can I really trust what he's saying? Yeah, he's talking about the God that we all know about, the God of the Old Testament. We don't even know what Jesus was saying in, in this particular moment. What we do know is at the critical moment of question for Simon Peter, Jesus used some words to him. And he said, Simon, go out. Drop your nets in deep water. I didn't know this until the past week, doing a bit of fishing research from the ancient world. There's different kinds of fishing in the ancient world. There was uh, nets which had floats and heavy weights. And they were generally the nets which were used for night fishing. They went very deep. As the water on the surface warmed up through the day, they would use those nets that you see them using where they throw them out and they they cast a really wide circle and then it drops down into the water and they pull it up. They're the nets that are used during the day. In the night, they use nets that go very deep. So that's where the fish are. Jesus said, go and cast your nets out. Been fishing all night, didn't catch a thing. Some of you might know, I was in Israel a couple of weeks, a few weeks ago, and there was a guy uh, who, he was a, fac- he was a really funny character. Um, some of you might have also, I, against all of my desires, I ended up tagged in a picture on Facebook um, of me sat on a, on a boat out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and we had one of those moments where everybody said, right now everybody wave, and everybody laughs because I'm the one person that didn't wave. But he, he took this net, and he was brilliant the way he cast it out. He, he had a bit of a laugh because he said this net was made in China, which was quite amusing. But he cast it out and uh, made this great big circle, went down into the water, pulled up the net, and he said, to be honest, I've never caught fish once while I've been doing this. In all the time he'd been demonstrating it for us gullible tourists, he'd never caught a fish. It made me think, I wonder whether... Simon Peter had felt a bit like that. He'd been out all night and he hadn't caught a fish. If you go fishing, you might know that feeling. It's not going to happen. 
for two reasons. One, because we've been fishing all night and we didn't catch anything. Two, because we're doing exactly the wrong thing for the day. They went out, however, they cast the nets. And they caught so many fish, such a large number of fish, that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. I think there's various views on that. And I am very, very comfortable with the idea that that's, if you like, some sort of license, some way of saying they had so many fish. Was it literally, absolutely, that the, water was, the boat was so deep that the water was beginning to lap over the edge? We don't need to actually consider that. It's a, it can be a, a way of describing a surprisingly, miraculously, in all sorts of other ways, huge number of fish have been extraordinarily caught. Is that just fascinating? Is that just some sort of uh, spooky magic trick that Jesus has done so that we can all say, isn't he amazing? Or is it something far more powerful? How did he do it? He said. That's the point that Luke is making. He said some things. And it absolutely happened as he said it would. What does that mean, therefore, for us? What did it mean for Peter? Well, he was so blown away by this that his response was was unquestioningly, I know who you are and I cannot possibly be near you. Look at what he says in verse 8. Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. What has he done to come to that conclusion? He has connected the words that Jesus said which resulted in the catch of fish with with the words that he had previously said about righteousness and the God who he was speaking about. Peter connected those two. He says, if you have made this catch possible, then I have to believe all of the other things that you said about God, about righteousness. You are a holy man, he says. He's made a connection through the words that Jesus is saying. What is Luke very subtly saying to us? He's saying, can we believe the authority of the words that Jesus said? Yes. And Jesus knew that we needed to understand, that we needed to believe the authority of the words that he said. And the way that he confirmed it was by using other words that did remarkable things. So that's the first step. In other words, Luke is saying, God present creates remarkable things in this world. His, his actions are worth, li- sorry, his words in action are worth listening to. Is that all it is? Is that what God present in this world means? I guess amongst them, on that uh, shore, there were inevitably people who were suffering because of the brokenness of this world. Is that all that there is that Jesus brings? Holy words. You see the way Luke constructs this? He's taking various cameos of the life of Jesus 
And he's connecting them together in, in a narrative of his life. He goes on to say, while Jesus was in one of the towns, that isn't necessarily the same day, is it? It's not as though he's telling a story which is flowing from one minute to the next. He's deliberately taking events and he's connecting them together so that the events that he connects speak to us about Jesus. And he comes to this point and he says, right, first thing, here's his words. Second thing, it's not just words, words, words. It's not just words, words, words. Jesus was in one of the towns. A man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. That's really fascinating what he says there, isn't it? It speaks a lot about what many people would say about God. We could paraphrase it like this. If God is good, why doesn't he do something? Stephen Fry said it last year, I think. He described God as utterly capricious and evil in his view because he doesn't do good things in this world and stop pain and suffering. That's how Stephen Fry described the idea of God. It's actually why he doesn't believe that there is a God. In a sense, this man is confronted with the possibility of the presence of divine power, and he says, if you're willing, if you're willing, you can do something. Jesus does the remarkable. He says, I am willing, be clean. But as he says, I am willing, be clean, he does something. So, so from one, one set where Jesus just uses words... Now, he does something. He he says, it says here, that Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I, I think that's amazing. It's amazing. Because what Jesus is doing is precisely what you would never do if you were wanting to stay righteously clean before God. In the Old Testament... Uh, Leprosy, which is probably in most cases not the leprosy that we now know of today, but was rather all sorts of different skin conditions, which were very obvious uh, and visible. One of the things that are repeated in the Old Testament is that uh, if you touch somebody with leprosy, then uh, you are unclean. In a strange way, God is indicating really practical life. One of the things that somebody with leprosy had to do was walk around with their lower face covered. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Walk around with their lower face covered. What does that mean? It means walk around with a mask on because it can create contamination. There is a connection between the law and practical ways of of, of living. And Jesus said, if you touch somebody who's unclean, you become unclean. There is something very practical and deeply spiritual with that. And Jesus says, 
be clean. And he touched it. And then he says to the man, immediately the man was healed. Straight away the man was healed. Uh, And Jesus says to him, now, don't tell anyone, go down to the temple. What seemed a strange thing to say, uh, don't tell anyone. Why would you not tell anyone? (laughs) Just become clear. I can imagine, like many of the cases where Jesus said that, um, that that was the last thing that the person actually did. It's a bit like saying, um, having a door which is at the back and putting a label on it says, please don't open this door. Uh, Loads of people are just going to open the door, aren't they? Uh, Jesus says, don't tell anyone. Most of those who Jesus said, don't tell anyone, couldn't keep their mouths shut. Why did Jesus say, don't tell anyone? Because what he was saying, in a sense, was he was saying to the man, "I I want you, first and foremost to honor the law of the Old Testament. Make it a priority. Don't, ru- don't make a priority of rushing around and telling lots of people what's happened. Don't make that a priority. Make a priority of going down to the temple uh, and making yourself uh, ceremonially clean again. In other words, Jesus is saying to the man with leprosy who he has just healed, I want you to understand that your spiritual well-being is the number one priority. It's not this amazing miracle that's just happened. Your spiritual well-being is the number one priority. Get that right first. Isn't it interesting, though, that the one who was unclean, supposedly ceremonially by touching the man who was unclean, doesn't do anything about going to the temple? Isn't that interesting? Jesus doesn't need to observe the law in that sense because he fulfills the law, we see. Isn't this interesting? The presence of God incarnate is words. It is amazing truth with an authority that we need to listen to, but it also wells up within us hope. It tells us that the brokenness of this world, when God is present, is not how it's going to be forever. What does that say to Theophilus, sat there listening to this, reading this, considering this? I don't know his situation, if he was truly a person. Let's imagine he was. Let's imagine he was in a situation right now where somebody in his family was physically suffering, physically hurting, broken, crushed by the reality of living in a broken world. Let's sit alongside Theophilus and let's just wonder how that might help. And Jesus isn't here now. Jesus isn't here now. He can't do that. Does God still heal people now, today? Absolutely, yes. Of course He does. Some incredibly miraculously, some through the incredible intervention of of human skills and wisdom, but everyone who is healed now is broken again, just like this leprous man who no longer lives. So how does this help? 
If we understand the whole of the message of Jesus, which says that the presence of what of God in Jesus will one day be permanent, then it tells us that all brokenness will one day be taken away. When God is present, we have hope. Step two. There is an incredible authority, therefore, that Jesus has. With authority over our broken human state. Step three. Jesus is teaching. Again, it says in verse 17, one day Jesus was teaching. In other words, again, there's no reason to believe that there's any connection between these. Luke is taking them one by one and he's constructing them step by step. Let me take you on a journey of what Jesus is all about. One day Jesus is teaching and the Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. You come from every every village in Galilee. They were all listening to Jesus. What we see at the beginning where he was out on a boat is repeated again where he's, he's just crushed into this building, so much so that there are people, it seems, leaning out of windows, crushed into the building, uh, hanging off the steps any way possible that they could hear Jesus speaking. Uh, and as Jesus is speaking, I can, can you imagine the scene? It's, it's hot. It's hot over there anyway. But it's hot. Let's imagine. It can be cold. I know it can be cold, but imagine it was a hot day. And we're sat in that room, we're crushed. We're not half sweating. It's really muggy, but we just do not want to leave because we absolutely want to hear what Jesus is saying. You know when the air gets really thick and it's kind of got us almost that, that mist of our, of our breath just kind of and all of I won't go any further yet. It's hot. And then just as Jesus is speaking, those little flecks of dust start to drop down in front of him. And then the little flecks of dust become a bit bigger. And then there's big chunks of the ceiling falling in, in front of Jesus. And all of the people within a few feet of Jesus, including Jesus himself, is being covered with broken dust as the ceiling is ripped apart. And then all of a sudden, there is this bright shaft of light that shines through the ceiling and lights up that spot where Jesus is standing. That is what happened. Somebody was vandalizing the roof. They were pulling the roof apart. And as the roof opens up and Jesus looks up, it suddenly gets dark again as a, as a person is lowered down, a man who is paralyzed is lowered down in front of Jesus, hanging down there on some ropes. And Jesus looks at this. Now, in the light of the previous, Jesus feeds, Jesus heals the leprous man. What would you expect Jesus to say. You would expect Jesus to say, I'm going to heal you. Stand up. And that is exactly what he doesn't say. 
when he sees the faith of the people who have brought this man, and inevitably the faith of the man himself in being willing to be taken and potentially publicly exposed by being dropped through the ceiling in front of Jesus, when Jesus sees the faith of these individuals, he says to the man, friend, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. That's an amazing thing. It strikes at the very heart of our identity as people. It strikes at the very core of who we are. Now, there are all sorts of debates about that, but both Shakespeare and Quentin Tarantino raise in front of us the question, is there a part of us which is inherently and uh, unavoidably self-centered, where we are at the center, where we are the main focus? He's been discredited in all sorts of ways, But one of the things that Freud said was this, that we have an innate desire to reap the greatest pleasure from living. That's not problematic to say that. We really want to reap the best from living by gaining an upper hand on people and circumstances. In other words, the way we want to live a great life is always at the cost of somebody else. It always is. It always is at the cost of somebody else. Our cheap clothing, our cheap clothes, our cheap electronic goods, all of those things that look and make Western civilized life a joyful place is at the expense of somebody else down the line. That is unavoidable. So in a sense, I agree with Freud. <laughs> we want to live a pleasurable life and it was all, is always at the expense of people and circumstances. But to avoid punishment, social rules and laws force you to consider other people's needs and welfare so that you have to turn your natural pleasure-seeking desires into forms that are socially and morally acceptable. (laughs) Isn't that fascinating? He says, you know, what we really want to do, we want it our own way. We want it at the cost of everybody. But there's that social kind of pressure that stops us from going all the way. That is one of the recurring themes that we see in uh, Tarantino movies. What is it always about? In some way, it's about revenge. It's about the bad things that have happened gaining the upper hand on those that have done bad things against us. That's what we see life as ultimately being fulfilled by. Yes, we can have all of great things in this life, but there is that nagging somebody who who has done something terrible to us, and both Shakespeare, in exactly the same way, confronts us with this, and he says, at the end, what do we want? We want revenge. We want to be raised up again. We want to be supreme. We want to be us at the center. And that is the very heart of our sinfulness. Us at the center. Us rebelling against the very notion of God at the center. Us rebelling against any idea of us conforming to God's laws for our life. God's way of us living. Rebelling against Him. Sinning against Him. And this man is dropped down in front of Jesus. Everybody expects Him to say, Get up. 
you're healed, and he says, your sins are forgiven. Why? Why does he say that? Why does Luke record that? Because Luke is desperate for us to understand that our greatest need is not being well again. Our greatest need is to be forgiven. That's our eternal need. That's the eternal need that we all have. That was the man's real problem. He needed to be forgiven. Because ultimately his rebellion was before God. And that really, really wound up the religious leaders all around Jesus. What blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God? And you know, in one sense, they are absolutely right. They're saying, they're saying a truthful thing. When Jesus taught on the boat, and Peter thought, can I trust him? So Jesus said words that became true. And Peter realized that he could trust him. Exactly the same pattern happens now. Jesus turns to them and said, look, which is the easiest? For me to say your sins are forgiven or for me to say get up? Which is the easiest? The easiest is to say your sins are forgiven. Isn't it? I can say that to you. I can say your sins are forgiven. And it means nothing. Because I haven't got the authority to say your sins are forgiven. Unless I use something in the Bible which is God saying your sins are forgiven. I have no right to give you freedom from the guilt of your sin. And Jesus had used incredible words. He says, which is the easiest? Get up. Can you imagine what it must have been like in that room? That moment when Jesus said, get up. I'll tell you now, the only sound that you would have heard would have been the rustling of the bonds and the ropes and the man's clothing as he stood up in front of Jesus and walked out of the room. It says walked out of the room. I can imagine it must have been some sort of kind of stepping over people as he negotiated this space between where he was healed and the doorway into the light outside. It must have been captivating. But the reality is what Luke is saying is if Jesus can do that, he also has the authority to say, I will forgive you of your sins. That is great news, Theophilus. It's also great news, Castleford 2016. <laughs> that is great news. You see, if Shakespeare and all of the contemporary filmmakers today, they want to put up a mirror to this humanity in which we exist and ask questions of us, that is not Luke's interest. He is not putting the mirror of Jesus up. He is saying, I am shining the light of the incarnate presence of God in this world. That's what Jesus called himself. He didn't say, I am the mirror of this world. He said, I am the light of this world. I am shining light into your darkness. Shining light into your darkness. Your fears of broken physicality 
mental stability, your fears of all of those broken experiences, your fears of not knowing what to believe, this or that, your ultimate fear of the guilt of your conscience that gnaws away. Jesus says, I am shining a light into this world. I am the one who brings an authority to bring words of hope. I can bring hope to your physicality. And all of that can be achieved because I can forgive you of your sins. That's real hope, isn't it? What do we, de- what do we need for that to be enacted? Well, we reflect it in our final song, which is by faith.